The God's Peculiar People podcast presents a recording of the life of D.L. Moody by his son, William R. Moody. The Life of D.L. Moody, Chapter 41, The Inquiry Room It will be remembered that just before Chicago was destroyed by flames in 1871, Mr. Moody had dismissed an audience, telling them to go home and think what they would do with Christ. He never met them again. This dismissal he regarded as one of the greatest mistakes of his life, and he determined never to repeat it. From that time on, he laid great stress on the after-meeting, which took place at the close of an evangelistic address, in which he tried to bring individual souls to an immediate decision as to the great issues he had brought before them. These meetings were probably the most characteristic and original feature of his work. Personal dealing is of the most vital importance, said Mr. Moody, in discussing the inquiry room and its use. No one can tell how many souls have been lost through lack of following up the preaching of the gospel by personal work. It is deplorable how few church members are qualified to deal with inquirers, and yet that is the very work in which they ought to aid the pastor most efficiently. People are not usually converted under the preaching of the minister. It is in the inquiry meeting that they are most likely to be brought to Christ. Some people can't see the use of the inquiry meetings. They think there is something new and that we haven't any authority for them but they are no innovation. We read about them all through the Bible. When John the Baptist was preaching, he was interrupted. It would be a good thing if the people would interrupt the minister now and then in the middle of some metaphysical sermon and ask what he means. The only way to make sure that people understand what he's talking about is to let them ask questions. I don't know what some men who have got the whole thing written out would do if someone should get up and ask, what must I do to be saved? Yet such questions would do more good than anything else you could have. They would wake up a spirit of inquiry. Some people say, all you want to do is to make preaching so plain that plain people will understand it. Well, Christ was a plain preacher, and yet he asked, Have you understood all these things? Matthew thirteen fifty one. He encouraged them to inquire. I think sometimes when the minister is preaching over their heads, people would be greatly relieved if he would stop and ask whether they understood it. His very object is to make the word of God clear. Christ was a plain preacher, but when he preached to Saul, the man was only awakened. Christ could have convicted and converted him, but he honored a human agency and sent Ananias to tell the word whereby he was to be saved. Philip was sent away into the desert to talk to one man in the chariot. We must have personal work, hand-to-hand work, if we are going to have results. I admit you can't lay down rules in dealing with inquirers. There are no two persons alike. Matthew and Paul are a good way apart, and the people we deal with may be widely different. What would be medicine for one might be rank poison for another. In the fifteenth of Luke, the elder son and the younger son were exactly opposite. What would have been good counsel for one might have been ruined for the other. God never made two persons to look alike. If we had made men, probably, we would have made them all alike, even if we had to crush some bones to get them into the mold. But that is not God's way. In the universe, there is infinite variety. The Philippian jailer required peculiar treatment. Christ dealt with Nicodemus one way, and with the woman at the well, another way. It is difficult to say just how people are to be saved. Yet there are certain portions of the scripture that can be brought to bear on certain classes of inquirers. I think it is a great mistake in dealing with inquirers to tell your own experience. Experiences may have its place, but I don't think it has its place when you're talking with others. For the first thing the man you are talking to will be on the lookout for your experience in his case. He doesn't want your experience, he wants one of his own. No two persons are converted alike. Suppose Bartimaeus had gone to Jerusalem to the man who was born blind and said, Now just tell us how the Lord cured you. The Jerusalem man might have said, He just spat on the ground and anointed my eyes with the clay. Oh, said Bartimaeus, I don't believe you ever got your sight at all. Who ever heard of such a thing as that? Why, to fill a man's eyes with clay is enough to put them out. Both men were blind, but they were not cured alike. A great many men are kept down in the kingdom of God because they are looking for somebody else's experience. The experience that their grandmother had, or their aunt, or someone in the family. Always use your Bible in personal dealing. Do not trust memory, but make the people read the verse for himself. Do not use printed slips or books. Hence, if convenient, always carry a Bible or New Testament with you. It's a good thing to get a man on his knees, but don't get him there before he is ready. You may have to talk within two hours before you can get him that far along. But when you think he is about ready, say, Shall we not ask God to give us light on this point? Sometimes a few minutes in prayer have done more for man than two hours in talking. When the Spirit of God has led him so far that he is willing to have you pray with him, he is not very far from the kingdom. Ask him to pray for himself. If he doesn't want to pray, let him use a Bible prayer. Get him to repeat, for example, Lord, help me. Tell the man, if the Lord helped that poor woman, he will help you if you make the same prayer. He will give you a new heart if you pray from the heart. Don't send a man home to pray. Of course he should pray at home, but I would rather get his lips open at once. 
It is a good thing for a man to hear his own voice in prayer. It is a good thing for him to cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Urge an immediate decision, but never tell a man he is converted. Never tell him he is saved. Let the Holy Spirit reveal that to him. You can shoot a man and see that he is dead, but you cannot see when a man receives eternal life. You cannot afford to deceive anyone about this great question, but you can help his faith and trust and lead him aright. Always be prepared to do personal work. When war was declared between France and Germany, Count von Mocky, the German general, was prepared for it. Word was brought to him late at night, after he had gone to bed. Very well, he said to the messenger, the third portfolio on the left, and he went to sleep again. Do the work boldly. Don't take those in a position in life above your own, but as a rule, take those on the same footing. Don't deal with a person of the opposite sex if it can be otherwise arranged. Bend all your endeavors to answer for poor, struggling souls that question of such importance to them. What must I do to be saved? Mr. Moody summarized his suggestions on this important subject thus. 1. Have for constant use a portable reference Bible, a Credence Concordance, and a topical textbook. 2. Always carry a Bible or Testament in your pocket, and do not be ashamed of people seeing you read it on trains, etc. 3. Do not be afraid of marking it or on making marginal notes. Mark texts that contain promises, exhortations, warnings to sinners and to Christians, gospel invitations to the unconverted, and so on. 4. Set apart at least 15 minutes a day for study and meditation. This little time will have great results and will never be regretted. 5. Prepare your heart to know the way of God and to do it. Ezra 7.10 6. Always ask God to open the eyes of your understanding that you may see the truth and expect that He will answer your prayer. 7. Cast every burden of doubt upon the Lord. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Do not be afraid to look for a reason for the hope that is in you. 8. Believe in the Bible as God's revelation to you and act accordingly. Do not reject any portion because it contains the supernatural or because you cannot understand it. Reverence all scripture. Remember God's own estimate of it. Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. 9. Learn at least one verse of the scripture every day. Verses committed to memory will be wonderfully useful in your daily life and walk. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Some Christians can quote Shakespeare and Longfellow better than the Bible. 10. If you are a preacher or Sunday school teacher, try at any cost to master your Bible. You ought to know it better than anyone in your congregation or class. 11. Strive to be exact in quoting scripture. 12. Adopt some systematic plan for Bible study, either topical or by subjects like the blood, prayer, hope, etc., or by some other plan outlined in the preceding pages. 13. Study to know for what and to whom each book of the Bible is written. Combine the Old Testament with the New. Study Hebrews and Leviticus together the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles, the Prophets and the historical books of the Old Testament. 14. Study to use the Bible so as to walk with God in closer communion, also so as to gain a working knowledge of Scripture for leading others to Christ. An old minister used to say that the cries of neglected text were always sounding in his ears, asking why he did not show how important they were. 15. Do not be satisfied with simply reading a chapter daily. Study the meaning of at least one verse. The Life of Dion Moody, Chapter 42, His Belief and Practice In the beginning of Mr. Moody's public efforts, his work, being independent of and outside the established churches, was often misunderstood by clergymen. He felt that there were scores of men in every denomination who could reach the people far better than he, if they would but lay aside a little clerical dignity and make the outsiders feel that the church was as desirous for their salvation as was the master. In his later years, he worked more in harmony with the ministers and won the confidence of the great majority hundreds availing themselves every year of his invitation to Northfield. He did not mince words when he felt the criticism was a duty. His picture of a man following his minister's sermons carefully and cutting out of a Bible whatever the minister said was not authentic was amusing, though sad. One day this man carried to his pastor a badly mutilated Bible, from which numerous leaves and parts of leaves had been cut out, saying, Here, pastor, is your Bible. My Bible, said the clergyman impatiently. Yes, I have cut out all that you said is fable and allegory and folklore, and also the mythical and so-called unauthentic parts, and here is what is left. Give it to me, said the preacher. No, you don't, the man replied. You haven't touched the covers yet, and I'm going to cling to them at least. I believe, said Mr. Moody, that there are a great many scholars in these days, as there was when Paul lived, who professing themselves to be wise have become fools. But I don't think they are those who hold to the inspiration of the Bible. I have said that ministers of the gospel who are cutting up the Bible in this way, denying Moses today and Isaiah tomorrow and Daniel the next day and Jonah the next, are doing great injury to the church. And I stand by what I said. I don't say that they are bad men. They may be good men. But that makes the results of the work all the worse. Do they think they will recommend the Bible to the finite and fallen reason of man by taking the supernatural out of it? 
They are doing just the opposite. They are emptying the churches and driving the young men of this generation into infidelity. My mind is made up, he said another time, on the question proposed, namely the relative merits of Christianity and infidelity, under whatever name it appears. Somebody once asked Charles Summers to hear the other side of slavery. Hear the other side, he replied. There is no other side. I would as soon discuss the merits of Christianity and infidelity as the common laws of morality. For honest doubt, he had the most utmost sympathy, and he spared neither time nor effort to lead a man to make the right decision. But he had no patience with a man who asked him hard questions simply for the sake of argument. No man could distinguish better the real and false more readily. He often told of this experience. A man came to me with a difficult passage in the Bible and said, Mr. Moody, what do you do with that? I do not do anything with it. How do you understand it? I do not understand it. How do you explain it? I do not explain it. What do you do with it? I do not do anything with it. You do not believe it, do you? Oh, yes, I believe it. Well, you don't accept anything you can't understand, do you? Yes, I certainly do. There are lots of things I do not understand, but I believe them. I do not know anything about higher mathematics, but I believe in them. I do not understand astronomy, but I believe in astronomy. Can you tell me why the same kind of food turns into flesh, fish, hair, feathers, or hoofs, according as it was eaten by one animal or another? A man told me a while ago he would not believe a thing until he had seen. And I asked him if he had ever seen his own brain. Did you ever notice that the things at which men argue most are the very things on which Christ has set his seal? When a liberal preacher declared that the story of Jonah and the whale was a myth, reporters asked Mr. Moody his opinion of the question. He replied simply, his reply, containing four words, was telegraphed far and wide, I stand by Jonah. While holding tenaciously to the Bible as the inspired word of God, and preaching the doctrines with Calvinistic fervor, he had sympathy with men who looked at truth from a different viewpoint, if the differences were merely intellectual. When Lord Overton invited him in the name of many Scottish Christians to return to Scotland and hold evangelistic service this there in 1899, Mr. Moody was obliged to decline, and in doing so said, The work in my own country has never been so promising as it is now. Destructive theology on the one side, and the no less evil spirit of extreme intolerance on the other side, have wrought wide dissension in many communities in America. Instead of fighting error by the emphasis of truth, there has been so much splitting of hairs, and too often an unchristian spirit of bitterness. This has frequently resulted in depleted churches, and has opened the way for the entrance of still greater error. Under these conditions, the question of the authorship of the individual books of the Bible has become of less immediate importance than the knowledge of the Bible itself. The question of the two Isaiahs less urgent than a familiarity with the prophecy itself. In this connection, it is interesting to see how firmly he clung to the word of God. Why should I get a new remedy for sin when I found one that has never failed, he said. The gospel has stood the test for 18 centuries. I know what it would do for a sin-sick soul. I have tried its power for 40 years. It is a singular fact that few men, otherwise well-educated, are acquainted with the English Bible. I can secure a hundred men who can teach Greek and Latin well, where I can only find one that can teach the Bible well. Take the Bible, study it, leave criticism to the theologians, feed on the word, then get out to work. Combine the two, study and work, if you be a well-orbed Christian. The Bible is assailed as never before. Infidels cast it overboard but it will always swim to the shore. The doctrines, the promises, the message of love are as fresh today as when first spoken. Pass on the message, be obedient to commands, waste no time in discussion. Let speculation and theorizing pass into the hands of those who like that kind of study. Be willing to do little things for the master. In the last summer of his life, Mr. Moody thus defined the Northfield platform. The central idea of the Northfield Conference is Christian unity and the invitation is to all denominations and to all wings of denom denominations. But it is understood that along with the idea of Christian unity goes the Bible as it stands. We seek at these meetings to find points of common belief. Too frequently, when Christians get together, they seek for the points upon which they differ, and then go at it. The Christian denominations too often present a spectacle of a political party, split into factions, and unable to make an effective fight. Do you know that every 24 hours, 300 persons die a drunkard's death in this country? In the last four years, there were 38,512 murders in this country. Here are things to unite on and combat. Mr. Moody was kindly inclined to all men whom he felt were endowed to do the work for the betterment of men. Although there may have been many so-called churches with which he could by no means agree, he was never heard to speak an unkindly word regarding them. His theory evidently was it was far better to spend his time in building up than endeavoring to tear down. Mr. Moody was, until his death, a member of the Chicago Avenue Church in Chicago an independent organization, although formed on congregational lines. It started as a home for the converts resulting from Mr. Moody's mission work in the Northfield Market Hall. Its purpose has been stated thus, Our church, unsectarian and in fellowship with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Our theme, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, who is over all, God blessed forever. Our object, the perfecting of the saints, 
the salvation of the lost. Our hope, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The present membership is about a thousand. The average attendance for children in the Sunday school is close on two thousand. In the congregation, the rich and poor meet together. The learned and the ignorant sit side by side and listen with pleasure and profit to the earnest sermons of Dr. Torrey. After meetings are frequently held and conversions are constantly occurring. The Northfield Church, of which Mr. Moody's children are members and which Mr. Moody heartily supported, is attended by students from the seminary and the training school. Before the Mount Hermon Chapel was built, the students from that school walked over every Sunday to the morning service. Dr. C.I. Schofield writes of Mr. Moody as an evangelist, calls attention to his strength and faithfulness under the trial of temptation. Three supreme tests await strong men in this life, he says, the testing of poverty and obscurity, of prosperity and applause, and of suffering. Many who enter life conscious, even though dimly of a great latent capacities, turn sour and bitter under neglect, narrow circumstances, and lack of appreciation. Others who pass that first trial successfully are corrupted or enfeebled by success and adulation. Many who stand erect alike in obscurity and success fail utterly under the test of suffering. By God's grace, Mr. Moody passed unscathed through them all. Perhaps it has happened to few men, suddenly lifted into the fellowship of the noble and famous in the earth, to be so little moved from the serenity of their minds, the even tenor of their ways. Doubtless this self-poise was in part an inheritance, the hilltown New Englander's habitual self-respect. But doubtless, too, Mr. Moody had so great a sense of the essential dignity of even the least of the sons of God, that he was little affected by earthly titles or personal fame. On one occasion it was whispered to him with some agitation that a certain exalted personage had entered the hall. Mr. Moody quietly replied, I hope she may be much blessed. This independence, springing as it did from elevation and simplicity of character, and not at all from self-assertiveness, commended Mr. Moody to all. In the superficial view, it was always Mr. Moody's generalship, his mastery of vast numbers of men gathered in meetings, which first impressed the observer, and for the following reason. Mr. Moody's grip of his audience was not due in the first instance to his power as a great preacher. Other men as Whitfield and Wesley and the great Welsh field preachers have drawn vast audiences, and in the end powerfully swayed them. However turbulent or tumultuous they may have been, when these great masters of the royal art of preaching rose to address them, but D.O. Moody never began to preach until he had gathered his audience into almost perfect report with himself. This was his unique distinction among other equally great preachers. To accomplish this result, he devised a method perfectly adapted to himself, but which in the hands of his imitators was by no means sure of success. Briefly, it was the conduct of a remarkably intense and spiritual preliminary service of song and prayer, interspersed with brief, pugnant, characteristic sayings of his own. From the time he came before his great audience to the moment when he rose to preach, he kept the entire body absorbingly occupied with something interesting, singing by the great mass choir, by quartets, duets, soloists, and by the whole assembly, never ceased except for prayer. But it would be an utter misapprehension to suppose that either Mr. Moody's purpose or the actual result achieved was the entertainment of the people. His own manner showed at once his tremendous earnestness, his profound concern for souls. As a preacher, D.L. Moody was most criticized from the standpoint of academic homiletics. Nor would any think of defending his preaching method on that ground. But the fact that for 35 continuous years, in the centers of culture and of active, practical thought in the English-speaking world, this self-taught preacher drew the greatest audiences which have faced any modern speaker on any theme. This fact, one would say, should suggest to teachers of homiletics that possibly they might learn something from him. His method was devoid of mystery. Drawing his matter from the scriptures, he utterly eschewed formal introduction, and plunged at once into the subject itself. He came early into the possession of a strong Saxon vocabulary, and his sense taught him the value of short sentences and phrases. Of all this, the man himself, as he stood before his audience, was utterly unconscious. He was tremendously in earnest, absolutely sincere, perfectly capable of phrase-making. It was his supreme possession by the Spirit, united with his powerful understanding, which were his safeguards against bathos, turgid rhetoric, poise, and artifice. Like all natural orators, he made great and effective use of illustration, and yet it is doubtful if he ever used even the most telling illustration purely for effect. He had an antidote, or referred to a Bible story incident, because it made his point clear. Among his natural gifts were humor, always refined, pathos, and a descriptive power which were due to his imagination. Few men ever equaled him in ability to summon before an audience the whole setting of a Bible incident, and he had the sovereign grace of brevity. He knew when to stop, and he never weakened his sermon at the close, and he never weakened his sermon at the close by recapitalization. The Life of Dale Moody, Chapter 43 Traits and Characteristics Of some prominent preachers, it has been said that when you see them in the pulpit, you wish they might never leave it, 
and when you see them out of it, you wish they might never enter it. This could never be said of D.L. Moody. His character could bear a rigid examination, as one of his closest friends said. Doubtless he had faults, but I never saw them. If his preaching was persuasive in the pulpit while addressing thousands, it was in the quiet seclusion of his home life, or in the companionship of a few warm friends, that he was most truly eloquent, impulsive, energetic, and resolute by nature. He yet possessed, in a great degree, quiet strength of patience, sympathy, and unselfishness. To the stranger, his most prominent characteristic was enthusiasm. Like the Apostle Paul, he could say, for me to live is Christ, and as a result of that life, his gain came at the end of earth's career. This one thing I do was the key to his life of service. Writing to Major Whittle in 1874 from Scotland, he said, I have done one thing on this trip, and the work is wonderful. One thing is my motto. Nothing could swerve him from this deep-rooted purpose of his life, and in all the various educational and publishing projects to which he gave his energy, there was but one motive, the proclamation of the gospel through multiplied agencies. But all this enthusiasm was perfectly controlled by what was perhaps his most remarkable quality, quoted before as his consecrated common sense. While his enthusiasm prompted him to seize every available opportunity for work, it was his keen insight into the conditions of any occasion that enabled him to judge of its fitness for his special effort. For this reason, he himself stood out against the advice of his friends, not that he did not welcome advice and appreciate it, but its value to him was chiefly suggestive. And if no new view of the matter was offered, it was not likely to be followed. To such an extent is this true that it may be safely said that in the beginning of all his greatest and most successful efforts, he stood alone, acting against the advice of those best able, apparently, to judge of the matter, with the one exception of his most valued human advisor, the companion of his life, his wife. He entered upon his first campaign in Great Britain. He entered upon his first campaign in Great Britain against the counsel of all his friends, against the advice of everybody. He guaranteed the financial liability of the first publication of the Moody and Sankey Hymns, the Northfield Schools, and the Chicago Bible Institute, were instituted in the face of great opposition, and were the subject of much criticism, until they demonstrated their success. And as to the founding of the Coal Portage Association, it was generally felt that in this work, at least, Mr. Moody had exceeded the limits of his strength. But in all these cases, as in many others, the results having not only surprised his advisors, but have far surpassed even the founder's expectations. To many men of less simplicity of heart, such evident superiority of judgment would have resulted in an intolerable conceit. But, although Mr. Moody was self-reliant, or, more truthfully, God-reliant, he was humbled to a degree. It never ceased to be a wonder to him that people wanted to hear him preach, and at the Northfield Conferences it was only after repeated and most urgent request that he could be induced to include himself among the speakers. I haven't the cheek to get up and speak when all these great preachers are here, he would say, in reply to the urgent invitations. The well-known head of a prominent lecture bureau relates that, being in Chicago with Henry Ward Beecher, at the time Mr. Moody was president of the association, he requested to introduce Mr. Beecher on the evening of the lecture, for which he was engaged. What? replied Mr. Moody. Introduce Beecher? Not I. Ask me to black his boots and I'll gladly do it. It is well known that Mr. Moody was much impressed by Mr. Beecher's great power as a preacher, and he believed he might very largely extend his influence, especially over young men. With this in view, he visited Brooklyn, and urged with great persistence that Mr. Beecher should give himself to evangelistic effort. It is asserted that the suggestion was actually considered by Mr. Beecher, and that for a time he seriously contemplated such work. Toward the close of the early mission in Brooklyn, Mr. Moody was interviewed by a representative of the secular press, to whose inquiry regarding his training for evangelistic work, he made this characteristic response. I am the most over-esteemed man in this country. For some reason, the people look upon me as a great man, but I am only a lay preacher and have little learning. I don't know what will become of me if the newspapers continue to print all of my sermons. My stock will be exhausted by and by, and I must repeat old ideas and teachings. Brooklyn hears, every Sunday, a score of better sermons than I can preach. I cannot get up such sermons as Dr. Storrs and Buddington and Kyler and Talmadge, and many others who preach here week after week. Mr. Moody's abhorrence of any appearance of obsequiousness was frequently in evidence. So pronounced was this aversion that at times he would take special precautions against being introduced to a person of special note who might attend his meetings. Speaking on one occasion in Washington, a person of particular distinction was seated on the platform behind Mr. Moody. After the service, he specially avoided an introduction explaining afterwards that there were a lot of people scraping and bowing around, and I'm not much on that line. 
On one of his earlier trips abroad, it was related that he received a most impressive introduction to some lord as he was beginning a service in a crowded hall. Good to meet you, lord, was the brusque acknowledgement. Won't you please give those two ladies a seat down there in the middle aisle? Pointing to two women who had just entered. But with all this strong aversion to an approach of civility, Mr. Moody was an ardent hero-worshipper. Seldom could he speak about Abraham Lincoln without tears, and he had a great and favorite fund of antidotes illustrating the nobility of his character. In much the same spirit, he would speak of Robert E. Lee, U.S. Grant, Stonewall Jackson, and William E. Gladstone. Nor did he limit his admiration to those who had passed beyond public criticism, but ardently expressed his regard for the statesmen then making the nation's history. President McKinley he considered to be the peer of Lincoln and Grant, and during the dark days of weighty responsibility attending the Spanish-American War, the chief executive had no sympathizer who remembered him more earnestly in prayer or more enthusiastically praised the wisdom which distinguished his policies. It has been noted that Moody frequently determined upon a course that did not appear wise to his friends. This meant that the perspectives were confused by what appeared to be insurmountable obstacles. Such obstructions never obscured Mr. Moody's vision, for if once he thought an object worth attaining, he undertook its achievement with an enthusiasm and vigor equal only by his determined perseverance. It was this last trait that contributed very largely to his success. Many of his enterprises would have been abandoned by a less courageous and persistent character. For him, obstacles were only an incentive to greater effort. I hate the word can't, he would say. When a man says you can't, it always makes me want to prove that I can. The beauty of nature was an unending source of delight to him. Northfield is famous for its natural scenery, and mountain drives through the surrounding country reveal new beauties with each changing season. It was on those lovely excursions that Mr. Moody would confine to his most intimate friends, his deep secrets and most cherished purposes. The surroundings seemed to influence him powerfully, and often on these drives he would suddenly break off his conversation, and reining in his horse, pour out his heart in praise to God for his mercies, or unburden his soul in a simple prayer for guidance or relief. The very spontaneity of such prayers revealed the atmosphere of his life, which was one of constant communion with God. It was not surprising, then, that he should seldom have long seasons of agonizing prayer such as some have experienced, for his closeness to God was not limited to special seasons, but was a continuous and uninterrupted experience. Intense conviction and determined concentration upon the one thing he did absorbed him, and he often gained a reputation for brusqueness. After a service conducted in the spirit of deep earnestness, he was not the man to enter into conversation over trifling things with one who claimed an acquaintance of a dozen years back. Or, if on such an occasion some dapper young theologian should hinder him in dealing with an anxious inquirer by accosting him with an inquiry as to the secret of his power, it was more than probable that a very apparent brusqueness would appear in his manner. He had little sympathy with controversy of any kind, or with the habitual disturbers of Christian unity and he never allowed himself to be hindered by cranks of either sex. From long-haired men and short-haired women, good Lord deliver us was part of his litany. On one occasion, after a morning session of the August Conference, a man upbraided him for not teaching the doctrines of holiness. Why, I have not sinned for years, claimed the stranger. Haven't you, said Mr. Moody? Well, before I accept your word for it, I should like the testimony of your wife. The perfectionist, therefore, gave such an exhibition of temper as to warrant the spectator's sympathy for his wife and Moody's skepticism. It was often remarked that Moody had a wonderful gift of intuition, by which he would readily make a wise decision. This would at first seem to be so, but such an impression was in reality the result of a superficial knowledge of the man. His conclusions were really made by a rapid deduction. Experience had crystallized into a few clearly defined laws and established certain criteria. This was illustrated perhaps as well by his quick and precise estimate of the capacity of a hall or a church as by any other means. Such an estimate is very hard to make offhand, and it is extraordinary how difficult it is to secure reliable data on the subject, even those best able to judge being inclined to greatly overestimate the figures. The old Illinois Street Church was just 100 by 50, and I always measure everything in my mind by that, was the explanation of his unerring accuracy in this line, and even when examining the largest audience halls, he always referred to the church where he first had an experience in the building. On much of the same principle, he judged character at first sight and it was an exceptional case when his first impression was wrong. When you shake hands with a man, look out for him if his hand is as limp as a dead fish, was his frequent warning. At another time, he warned against those who tell all they know at first acquaintance. In public speaking, his method of judging his audience was of the same nature. I always select a few people in the audience here and there to whom I speak. If I can interest them and hold their attention, I have the entire audience. 
If any one of those goes to sleep or loses interest, I work to secure the attention of that one. Mr. Moody was rich in friends, whom he found in all parts of America and Great Britain. Of their confidence and regard for him, there is no need to speak, as the work which they enabled him to establish and maintain at Northfield and Chicago most clearly indicates their appreciation of his aims and judgment. For twenty years he raised an average of over $100,000 annually for the support of his several enterprises. In addition, over $100,000 was invested in the permanent equipment of the schools, and many hundreds of thousands were secured by him during his public life for incidental undertakings in behalf of the Young Men's Christian Association and other organizations. Any real friendships he counted a special blessing, not to be held lightly. It has been said, however, that few of his friends enjoyed any very great degree of intimacy. This is particularly true, and few men ever entered into that close inner circle of fellowship in which he would lay bare his innermost secrets of his soul. There were a few of those, however, whose friendship he knew to be true, and among those was Henry Drummond, for whom Moody had a love, as he himself expressed it, like that which David felt for Jonathan. The mutual regard of these two men, so different both in nature and in training, was most significant of the breadth of charity in both. Moody, who loved Drummond as a brother, and appreciated his deep spirituality, would say of him, he was the most Christ-like man I ever knew. Drummond, who knew and thoroughly appreciated Mr. Moody as few have done, testified to his friend's character in equally vivid terms. In the course of a short biographical sketch of Moody in McClure's magazine, he gave the following appreciation. Simple as this man is, and homely as are his surroundings, probably America possesses at this moment no more extraordinary personage. Not even among the most brilliant of her sons has anyone rendered a more stupendous or more enduring service to his country or his time. No public man is less understood, especially by the thinking world, than D.L. Moody. It is not that it is unaware of his existence, or even that it does not respect him, but his line is so special, his work has lain so apart from what it conceives to be the rational channels of progress, that it has never felt called upon to take him seriously. So little, indeed, is the true stature of this man known to the mass of his generation, that the preliminary estimate recorded here must seem both exaggerated and ill-considered. It will surprise many to know that Mr. Moody is as different from the supposed type of his class as light is from darkness. That while he would be the last to repudiate the name, indeed, while glorying more and more each day, he lives in the work of an evangelist. He sees the weaknesses, the narrowness, and the limitations of that order, with as clear an eye as the most unsparing of his critics. But especially will it surprise many to know that, while preaching to the masses, it has been the main outward work of Mr. Moody's life. He has, perhaps more and more, varied irons in the fire, educational, philanthropic, religious, than almost any living man. And that vast has been his public work as preacher to the masses, it is probably true that his personal influence and private character have done as much as his preaching to affect his day and generation. Whether esteemed by the moral qualities which go to the making up of his personal character, or to the extent to which he has impressed these on whole communities of men on both sides of the Atlantic, there is, perhaps, no more truly great man living than Deal Moody. I have met multitudes and personally know in large numbers, men and women of all the churches and creeds, of many countries and ranks, from the poorest to the richest, and from the most ignorant to the wisest, upon whom he has placed ineffaceable moral mark. There is no large town in Great Britain, and I find that there are few in America, where this man has not gone, where he has not lived for days, weeks, or months, and where he has not left behind him personal inspirations which live to this day, inspirations that from the moment of their birth have not ceased to evidence themselves in furthering domestic happiness and peace, and charities and philanthropies, in social, religious, and even municipal and national service. From those who had the opportunity of knowing him best through close and constant companionship, some of the most unreserved and spontaneous testimony to Mr. Moody's simple, open, unselfish character. Mr. Sankey's experience would be largely the record of this entire work, but in the following he has epitomized his impressions. One of the greatest compliments to his preaching was that the sermon that would hold the rapt attention of the most intelligent of his congregation would also be listened to with the same eagerness by the child present. Anyone, everyone, understood what he said. His meaning was clear to every child. It was convincing to the old. No other preacher ever mastered this art. If anything connected with Mr. Moody may be called an art of reaching the understanding of old and young at the same time, his simplicity of language was remarkable. The strong individuality of the man spoke out in every sentence. The beauty of his powerful nature shone in his work. One of the reasons of his phenomenal success in bringing souls to God was that he believed absolutely, implicitly, in the message he gave to men. His faith was the faith of a little child. No doubts ever dimmed his faith in the word of God. 
To him it was the truth, and the whole truth. He never sat down and folded his hands, and waited for the Lord to bring about what he wanted. He did not believe in passive Christianity. Mr. Moody never tried to exalt himself, never thought of himself. He made no attempts at fine speeches or rhetorical phrasing. He once said, Christ talks in parables. Oh, how I wish I could talk in parables. I would if I knew enough. His simple, direct manner of work has often been described. His tremendous earnestness, his indomitable energy, his lovable personality, and above all and through all, his thorough goodness won him the hearts of millions. No one can meet him without admiring him. No one could know him without loving him. The rich, the learned, the poor, the happy, and the miserable, convicts shut in by iron bars and the great ones of earth, alike found that he had a message for each. Now the world grieves that one of the noblest souls of earth has passed beyond our ken. Our comfort lies in the fact that one day, when the mists have rolled away, we will meet him again. One of Mr. Moody's most efficient helpers in the later years was Professor D.B. Tower, who was associated with him for the last 14 years of his life, beginning with the Cincinnati meetings in the fall of 1885. After that time, Professor Towner had charge of the music at all the college conferences. He also attended several of the August conferences, assisting Sankey and Stebbins in the singing. Since 1893, he has been connected with the Bible Institute. And speaking of Mr. Moody, he said, During all these years, there has never been the slightest misunderstanding between us and I have never met a man who came so nearly to Christ's standard as he. He was absolutely unselfish, always sharing everything with his helpers, and looking after their comfort with the care and tenderness of a father. Never in the fourteen years that I have been associated with him has he said an unkind word or given me an unkind look. My father could not have been more kind or solicitous for my comfort and welfare. My love for him was stronger than for any man in the world, and his influence on my life for good has been greater than that of any ten men that I have ever known. I never knew such a friend, and should never cease to thank God that I was privileged to know him and labor with him. After his meetings in Oakland, California, in the spring of 1899, when I accompanied him as a singer, we took the train from Santa Cruz. We were hardly seated when in came a party of young men, one of whom was considerably under the influence of liquor and very badly bruised, with one eye completely closed and terribly discolored. He had once recognized Mr. Moody and began to sing hymns and talk very loudly for his benefit. Mr. Moody caught up his bag and said, Tanner, let us get out of here. When I reminded him that the other car was full, he sat out down, protesting that the company should not allow a drunken man to insult the whole car in such a manner. Presently the conductor came, and Mr. Moody called his attention to the poor fellow in the rear of the car. The conductor attended to his duty, and when he reached the young man, he said a few words to him in a low voice. The young fellow followed him into the baggage car, where he bathed his eye and bound it up with his handkerchief, after which the young man soon fell asleep. Mr. Moody sat musing for a time, and then said, Towner, that is an offer of rebuke to me. I preached against Phariseeism last night to a crowd, and exhorted them to imitate the Good Samaritan. And now, this morning, God has given me an opportunity to practice what I preached, and I find I have both feet in the shoes of the priest and Levite. He was reticent all the way to Santa Cruz, but told the incident that night to the audience, confessing his humiliation. During the Columbian campaign in Chicago, Mr. Moody used to preach in the Haymarket Theater on the west side. One night the crowd came early, and he closed the meeting before the cab came to take him to his room in the Bible Institute. Starting down Madison Street on foot, knowing he would meet the cab, he had not gone far when he was accosted by a rough-looking fellow who asked for money. Mr. Moody told him that he did not have a cent with him. The stranger seemed rather cross, began to complain about the way he was treated, and said he was starving and must have some money. Mr. Moody did not care to proceed any further for fear he might follow and give him trouble, so we entered into conversation with him, and presently the cab drove up. "'Lend me a dollar,' said Moody to the driver. "'Certainly, Mr. Moody,' was the reply. At this remark, the tramp said, "'Is this Moody the evangelist?' Mr. Moody said it was, and that he had just been preaching at the haymarket, at the same time handing him a dollar that the driver had put into his hands. But the poor fellow drew back, saying, "'No, no, my father is a poor Methodist minister, and I will starve before I will take a penny from you, Mr. Moody.' On another occasion he came upon a crowd of rough fellows, he did not want to seem to shun them, and yet he did not care to go through the crowd. So, stepping boldly up to a big burly fellow, who seemed to be the leader, he said, "'Won't you please hold my coat for me?' And to the other, "'Would you just hold my Bible?' After the coat was on, he said, "'Thank you, gentlemen. When you get old and stiff, I hope someone will be as kind to you.' It is needless to say, he could pass safely through then. So while Mr. Moody was a devoted friend, he was not the man to condone a fault in anyone he loved. On occasion, he has severed relations with one whom he believed to be wrong." though this often cost him much suffering, as only a true and loyal heart can feel. 
On the other hand, he would make any personal sacrifice to help a friend, and occasions have not been wanting where he stood by a friend in difficulty at the expense of great personal loss, necessitating more than temporal inconvenience. The home, above all other places, is where a man most truly reveals himself, and here Mr. Moody was at his best. Home was the sweetest place upon earth to him, and had he chosen only his own comfort and pleasure, he would have devoted his last years of work at Northfield, in connection with his schools, without heeding the calls to service in the outer world. Entering into all the plans and interests in everything which demanded the attention of the members of his family, he made their life his own. A child's pleasures afforded him keen enjoyment. The student's school or college experience enlisted his heart's sympathy, and his advice in business affairs or even domestic problems was most highly valued. Nothing was too trifling for his notice, and in the home and community he became the great burden-bearer. Of later years, it was his custom to spend the months from October to April, inclusive, in evangelistic work, returning to Northfield about the 1st of May. There was no place he loved more than this, and he always regretted to have to leave it, even for short absences during the summer months. His correspondence was always large, and he made it a point to open every letter himself. Inquiries connected with the different schools were separated and given to his subordinates, and general letters were usually handed to his secretary. In special cases, he would indicate by brief notes what reply should be made. Letters received prompt attention. Even those from disagreeable people were usually courteously acknowledged. In nothing, perhaps, is Mr. Moody's generalship more manifest than in his capacity for detail, wrote a friend. Nothing is too minute for his best thought, for he knows how much results depend on little things. Along with this genius of details goes remarkable quickness of insight and decision. The old proverb, a prophet is not without honor save in his own country, cannot be said of Mr. Moody, for surely no person could be more sincerely loved and honored by his townsmen than was he, wrote a correspondent of the county paper in describing him as a citizen and neighbor. Expressions of sorrow were heard from all classes of people in the town, and could each tribute be presented by a blossom on his grave, it would be piled high with flowers. His townsmen had been proud of him as a citizen, as a man, and as a religious worker. Although not all of them have endorsed his religious belief, they have thoroughly believed in his honesty of purpose and sincerity, and are convinced that the results of his life work will be lasting and of an estimable value to future generations. They know that Northfield has been changed from a quiet farming town, with corresponding disadvantages, to a thrifty village with a steady growth, and that there, and at Mount Hermon, have been established two of the most best-fitting schools in the state, all through the energy and perseverance of this man. Each effort has been made by him to bring these schools within the reach of the boys and girls of the town, and many an ambitious father and mother have been able to educate their children through his effort. Last summer he was told of a woman who was supporting her family by taking in washing. Her daughter was ready for the seminary, but she almost despaired of her ability to send her. Mr. Moody instantly replied, Tell the principal to put her on the free list and find her a room in the buildings. The townsgirls must be helped first. This is only one instance of many. Under certain provisions, a few years ago, he offered every Northfield and Gilboy free tuition for the first year at Mount Hermon, and several boys have availed themselves of this opportunity each year since. He was instantly alert and ready with money and work to forward any plan to benefit the town. At the time the Village Improvement Society was formed, he subscribed $100 to improve the street, knowing that it would be expended in part for the village remote from the school and his residence. Every year since his formation, he has given generously of his money, and has often offered valuable advice and wise suggestions. He was very proud of the magnificent trees of the village, and nothing irritated him more than any attempt to injure them. He had a large number of trees and shrubs set about his place, and on the seminary grounds. It must have been very gratifying to him to see Seminary Hall in all its June splendor, knowing that in his childhood it was considered one of the most barren places in town. One old man once said that the side hill wouldn't bear white beans when he was a boy. He was a kind neighbor, sickness and trouble finding him ready with sympathy and material help. The delicacies of his garden and fruit orchard found their way into many a humble home. He encouraged his wife and daughter to interest themselves in helping the sick and needy in all parts of the town. During the autumn, when fruit was abundant, the seminary girls were given free access to his orchard and grapery, to eat and carry baskets full to their rooms. Each fall, all the surplus apples from his own orchard and from the seminary campus, and all he could solicit from neighboring farmers, to the extent of hundreds of bushels, were distributed among the poor in Boston and New York. He had a strong aversion to committees. A few months ago, an organization was being effected in the town hall, and a motion was made to appoint certain committees. Mr. Moody rose and said, We don't want committees. When you want anything done, tell Mr. So-and-so to do it, and you will accomplish something. One is enough to constitute any committee. 
If there had been a committee appointed, Noah's Ark would never have been built. Mr. Moody was accused of lowering the pulpit by some people in Boston because he declared that the churches should seek those who did not seek the churches. His reply was, if lowering the pulpit means bringing it to the people, I would to God I could. If I wanted to hit Boston, you don't think I would mount my guns on Bunker Hill Mount and fire into the air, do you? On Sunday evening, April 21st, 1895, Mr. Moody was holding a meeting in a specially constructed building in the city of Fort Worth, Texas. The roof was flat and, as it turned out, insufficiently supported. During one of the meetings, when the audience present numbered about 4,000, a heavy rain fell and the water collected on the flat roof. In the very midst of Mr. Moody's sermon, a loud crash was heard, and a large section of the roof over the middle of the vast auditorium fell in. I was sitting a little distant from the front, in company with a distinguished general of the Confederacy, says C.I. Schofield, at that time a pastor in Dallas, Texas. I was struck, as all present were, with the perfect peace of mind of Mr. Moody, and the manner in which he held control of the audience, preventing a stampede which would inevitably have resulted in great injury to limb and possible loss of life. When quiet was restored, and the people had gotten safely out of the building, this general turned to me and said, Dr. Schofield, I have seen many brave men in my life put into positions of great personal danger, and I believe I know a brave man when I see him tested. I want to say to you that I have never seen a braver man than D.L. Moody. Mr. Moody was quick to take in a situation, and prompt in giving an answer to what would require a good deal of thought and consideration on the part of many. Referring to an incident where this characteristic was marked, a friend said, I was very anxious to learn Mr. Moody's opinion of a certain minister, Dr. X, who has been spoken of as a desirable man for a pulpit then vacant. I ventured to say, Mr. Moody, confidentially, what is your opinion of the Reverend Dr. X for such a pulpit? Mr. Moody rose from his seat, went to the window, and looked out for several minutes without saying a word. I feared that I had offended him. He then turned and said, There is too much tomahawk about him. We resumed our pleasant conversation about other matters, and the subsequent history of the clergyman proved the correctness of Mr. Moody's judgment. Quite as interesting was the answer which a clergyman received who had gone to Northfield to interview Mr. Moody concerning a man whom he wished to procure for Christian work. When asked for the interview, subject having been mentioned, Mr. Moody, without naming time or making further explanation, said, Get his boots if they can. They are better than most men's whole bodies. Mr. Moody had little regard for red tape, and could not always be held to the requirements of parliamentary procedure. One afternoon, while the trustees of the seminary were considering ways and means, a member of the board was obliged to withdraw before the end of the meeting. He was about to enter his carriage when Mr. Moody raised a window and said, Will you give a thousand dollars if I will do the same? All right, came the answer. Mr. Moody, as he closed the window, remarked that he did not have a thousand dollars himself, but he would raise it somewhere or another. In response, one of the trustees smilingly remarked that that was a somewhat irregular proceeding, but Mr. Moody answered, Oh, well, we do everything up here differently from other people. Once, while driving in the woods, he found a plank broken in the flooring of a small bridge. Returning, he called to one of the farmhands working on the hotel grounds and said, A plank is broken in the bridge, describing the location. Take a new one, go over and put it in. The man hesitated, then said, That bridge does not belong in our district. I know, said Mr. Moody, and my horse doesn't belong in that district either, but it might have broken his leg just the same. Mr. Moody was as careful of detail as he was of great plans. While preaching, he would stop in the middle of his discourse, if necessary, and say, Will the ushers please open the windows let in a little fresh air? It is getting close in here. At another time, he would rouse the audience by saying, You are getting sleepy while I am talking to you about assurance. I don't want you to think I'm a dull preacher. You need some fresh air. Then, after a few minutes' interval, shut the windows. I see they are putting on their wraps. Mr. Moody was adverse to having his photograph taken, and only twice did he sit for picture alone after he began his evangelistic work. When his grandchildren were born, however, he was induced to reconsider his objections, and some of the best pictures are those in which he figures with one or another of the little ones. Bishop Huntington of the Diocese of Central New York came to Northfield in the early part of Mr. Moody's evangelistic ministry, as he said to seek an interview. When I reached there, I found him pitching off a load of oats in the barn. In a serious and candid talk under a tree in the yard, he said some words which I have recalled and repeated many times. They were these. I know perfectly well that, wherever I go and preach, there are many better preachers known and heard than I. All that I can say about it is that the Lord uses me. That, I take it, was the faith of the spirit of his own extraordinary career, and the sacred secret of his power. He was strong because he was simple. He prevailed and succeeded because he was genuine, because he was a willing instrument of the will of God. One morning he arose somewhat earlier than was his custom, in order to study and prepare his address for the morning session of the students' conference. He went to the window and looked out to see if the indications were for a pleasant day. As he did so, he saw a student carrying a heavy valise. 
it was evident that the young man was on his way to the station to catch the early morning train. I had started to read my Bible, said Mr. Moody, in speaking of the matter afterwards, but somehow I couldn't fasten my attention to the book. I could see before me as I read that young man trudging along with the heavy valise. Perhaps he had given the quarter that it would cost him to ride to the station in the collection taken up at my request the day previous. Yes, and he had nearly two miles to walk. Surely that box must be heavy. I couldn't stand it any longer. I went to the barn and immediately had my horse hitched up, overtook the young man, and carried him and his baggage to the station. When I returned to the house, I found I had no further difficulty in fixing my attention on the subject I was studying. He had the largest confidence in the medical profession, for, to use his own words, never yet in all my years of work have I called on an able doctor, telling him of the sickness of need of some poor and friendless person that he did not at once go to the rescue without money and without price. These are the men who are called devils by the faith healers. God heals through doctors and medicine. Do you ask what I would do if I were ill? Get the best doctor in town. Trust him and trust in the Lord to work through him. When special services were being held in the congregational church, he told the people that they were not making effort enough to get their neighbors to come to church. Why don't you bring somebody in your big wagon, he said, addressing one well-to-do farmer by name. Because my wagon is already filled with my own house, was the reply. Mr. Moody at once said he must have a wagon, one way or another, adding that he wanted to invest $25 in one himself, and called for contributions. People in the audience added $100 more, and later $80 additional was subscribed. This was the beginning of the church wagons, which in summer seasons are seen driving from the hotel and through the streets, carrying people to and from the service for your charge. One of the most trying positions into which Mr. Moody was frequently brought was that of a father confessor. It was quite impossible, even if it was desirable, to prevent persons with great burdens on conscience and heart, making known the particular condition. One case of special interest occurred during the mission in St. Louis. A very gentlemanly man called and confessed that he was the transgressor of the civil law. His crime was ever before him. If he confessed before the authorities, a commitment to the penitentiary for a long term would undoubtedly be the result. Mr. Moody, the man said with deep emotion, I want your advice. I am willing to suffer for my sin, but I have a beautiful home, a devoted wife, several lovely children. A public confession means to these disgrace and poverty. What is my duty before God? I have been forgiven by him. I only desire to know what is the right course to pursue, and I believe I am willing to take it, regardless of the consequences. Mr. Moody's heart was touched. He felt obliged to reply, My friend, I can't undertake to advise you. You must go to God and ask him. The next day, the man again called and said, Mr. Moody, I do not think I need your advice now. I have fully determined what is right. I purpose giving myself up. He spent one week more with his wife and children, then placed himself in the hands of the law, and was sentenced for a long term. The wife was obliged to support herself and her children, and this she did for some time. Mr. Moody endeavored, without success, to obtain a pardon for the penitent. A few years later, he renewed his efforts, and he was very hopeful, and made a special trip to the state capital to interview the governor. Mr. Moody was very cordially received, but when the object of his call was stated, the request was positively denied, and Mr. Moody returned home greatly saddened. Later, under another administration, a pardon was obtained, and the family are now happily reunited. The Reverend Dr. Henry Clay Trumbull says that one element of Mr. Moody's power was his fearless independence in speech and manner. He dared to be himself, and he would never risk trying to be anybody else. When holding meetings in Baltimore in 1878, he telegraphed Dr. Trumbull, asking if he would come down and aid in the work. The following incident connected with that visit is related by Dr. Trumbull. I went down, joined him in his meeting, and then passed the night in his temporary home. In the morning, he asked me to conduct the worship in his family group. I said I would read the passage of next Sunday's lesson, Zacchaeus the Publican. Noticing my pronunciation of the proper name, he said, Is that the way to call it? Yes, I said. The proper pronunciation is Zacchaeus, but we Yankees almost always start the emphasis a little too soon. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, said Mr. Moody, trying the word to his ear. Then he added, I guess I'd better stick to the old way. He measured himself aright, as he did many others. Moody knew his power, and knew his lack, and he had due regard for both. He never attempted what was outside of his limitations, but he was fearless in the use of what he had. Moody was no oriental scholar, nor did he assume to give a Bible picture in its eastern setting. But he did get the idea of a Bible scene, as he had it in his mind, and he wanted his hearers to have it in theirs. I once heard him in telling the story of Daniel. Picture Daniel as taking out his watch to note the time as noon approached, when he could pray as usual, lions or no lions. In his earnest graphic way, he made that scene so real that no one thought of any acronym on his part. So again, as he told the story of Noah's warning before the flood, he pictured the scoffers at that day while the deluge was delayed. They'd say one to another, Not much sign of old Noah's rainstorm yet. They talked it over in the corner groceries that evening. Then, as if in explanation, he added, 
I tell you, my friends, before the world got as bad as it was in Noah's day, they must have had corner groceries. Everybody could understand that kind of talk. Yet Mr. Moody was a hard student, and he gained and grew steadily in intellect and knowledge as years went on. He told me of the surprise expressed by one man who found him in his study with books open before him. You don't mean, Moody, that you use commentaries, do you? Of course I do. Then I shan't enjoy your sermons as I have now that I know that. Have you ever liked my sermons? Of course I have. Then you've liked Moody's commentaries, have you? The Reverend S.A. Taggart, State Secretary of the Young Men's Christian Association of Pennsylvania, accompanied Mr. Moody during a number of meetings at that state, and relates several characteristic incidents. He says, Mr. Moody had a fine sense of the fitness of things. In one of the cities, when the meeting was being held, a prominent representative of Christian work called upon him. He was a very dignified man, with a seeming air of wisdom, and carried a fine gold-headed cane. I saw Mr. Moody looking at the cane, and seemed to act as a sort of non-conductor of freedom of intercourse. After the man had gone, he said to me, why don't you carry a gold-headed cane? I told him I did not have enough dignity. Why don't you carry one, I said. He replied, I would cut a nice figure coming into an inquiring meeting tonight with one. I think the inquirers would be looking more at the cane than listening to me. A good while ago, I was down in the south, and the delegation waited on me and presented me with such a cane. I soon found myself being charged extra at the hotels, and the porters, newsboys, and bootjacks were charging about double. I asked the newsboy why he did that. Oh, he said, look at my cane. You man can afford it and you don't come around very often. I hurried to Chicago for fear I would run out of money, put the cane in the closet, and had never carried it since. In another city, Mr. Moody said to me, there seems to be something here out of the ordinary, obstructing the work and hindering a great blessing. I found out the next day that the town had a considerable number of free thinkers or theoretical infidels, and they were out at the meetings to see Mr. Moody. As they said, hypnotizing the converts. I told him of the state of things. Always very earnest in his seasons of prayer, in his room before the meeting, that night he was even more so than ordinary. His burdens of heart seemed to be very great. He preached with great earnestness, and then called for all who desired to stay for the after-meeting. Nearly the whole congregation remained. He came down from the platform to get nearer to the inquirers. He began to instruct them, and in a little while got upon a chair to get a better view of his audience, and launched into a most wonderful discourse. His invectives against sin and lashings of the conscience were awful. All his resources of apt Christian quotation and illustration were a perfect command. He seemed to be wrestling with an unseen power, and might have made a good picture of Elijah and Carmel. I saw men whose faces grew pale into conviction of conscience. Then he began with the wounds of the gospel, in a strain of tender and heartbreaking entreaty, and before he was through the whole audience seemed to be completely broken. One man arose and said, Mr. Moody, I want to be a Christian. It seemed but a moment after that, when forty or fifty men were on their feet making a similar declaration. The only time I ever heard Mr. Moody make a comment on any of his sermons was that night when he said, Thank God for that victory. When Mr. Moody came to know William Thaw of Pittsburgh, and his broad generosity in giving of all kinds of good works, he was greatly impressed. He once went to him asking for $10,000 for his schools. Mr. Thaw told him that he had changed his method of giving. In place of large amounts, he preferred to give more frequently and in lesser sums, and to a greater number of objects. That his usual gift ranged from 50 to $500 in each case. But I will make an exception for you and give you 5000 he said. Mr. Moody replied, I am a very busy man, Mr. Thaw, and I hardly see how I can find the time to come and see you once a month or so to get the other 5000 in the smaller installments. Mr. Thaw was so greatly amused at this idea of Mr. Moody's that he gave him the whole amount at once. Elijah was one of Mr. Moody's ideal characters, but Elijah under the juniper tree was to him the most reverse. But once did I see him when he seemed to be cast down. In the place where he was holding meetings, someone had incidentally circulated the false report that he was making a great amount of money out of his work. He heard about it, and it greatly disturbed him. He said, I have a notion. Take the train and go home. I think I can suffer almost anything but this. I told him that I felt confident that not a single Christian man in the audience gave credence to such a report for a moment. He said to me, If the committee or anyone else ask you how much I charge, tell them not one cent. And if they offer anything for me, refuse to take it. The false report, however, only served to equate the people of the place with the fact that great financial burdens were resting on Mr. Moody and the education of hundreds of young men and women, and the offerings in that place were very generous, and when they were presented to him, it was the distinct understanding that the people knew of his burden and wanted to help him bear it. Mr. Moody frequently showed his appreciation of music, especially vocal music, and the prominence given to praise in all of his services was an evidence of this. Few people knew, however, that he had absolutely no musical ear, being unable to distinguish one tune from another. Paradoxically, as it may appear, no one more readily detected any difficulty in the singing or appreciated more highly a well-trained chorus. His use of music in his services was most effective. 
The singing had a great and at times overpowering religious value. Before the evangelists rose, the throngs were often touched and persuaded. A great number of cases came to be known in which monumentous decision for Christ was actually made during the singing. Never was a more thoughtless criticism uttered than that Moody used music merely to attract. In an attempt to present the man's characteristics from all sides and points of view as an evangelist, uh, an American, a citizen, a director, a friend and father, it has been impossible to do more than touch upon what is most apparent to his friends. But the keynote of the whole is struck in the following antidote, which appeared in the youth's companion. A young missionary, far in the interior of China, received for baptism a little child. The name given was Modi. So unusual a combination that the minister asked his origin. I have heard of your man of God, Moody, was the reply. In our dialect, Mu means love, indeed God. I would have my child too love God. Mr. Moody knew no Chinese, but his name alone told him that language the secret of his life. To learn more about God's peculiar people, visit the links in the description.